0: That you would bless it. We ask that you would speak to us because yours is the voice we need to hear above all others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for these Sundays in Epiphany, the New Testament readings have been from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. And so we continue that today in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 50. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is the word of the Lord. Man, the writing style of the Apostle Paul. All right. The gospel lesson in our sermon text today is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Let me remind you, this is God's word to us, and it's given to us because he loves us. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, would be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is is the gospel of our Lord. So the theme of Epiphany is Jesus being revealed as the light and the life of the world. And our vocation, not so much to become enlightened, like I've had an epiphany moment, you know, and the light bulb has gone off and now I understand, but to actually become sources of light. To become sources of Jesus' light and life and love for ourselves and for each other. And last week we looked at the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain and a little bit about how Jesus' vision for how that light will shine in this world is upside down and inside out and completely backwards from what we might expect in this world and in this life. And today we get to perhaps the most comprehensive and most difficult statement Jesus makes in perhaps all his ministry. The statement that summarizes just how radical the kingdom of Jesus is truly is, when he says, love your enemies. There are many examples throughout history of people who have wrestled with how to love one's enemies at great cost to themselves. I think perhaps in our nation's history, none has exemplified this more than Dr. Martin Luther King. We should probably just read his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, and skip my feeble attempt to preach a sermon on loving your enemies, but you pay me well to preach, not to read, so I will give it my best. And I will only read an excerpt from Dr. King's sermon, Love Your Enemies. He says this, When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. Probably no admonition of Jesus has been more difficult to follow than the command to love your enemies. Some people have sincerely felt that its actual practice is not possible. This command of Jesus challenges us with new urgency. Upheaval after upheaval has reminded us that modern humanity is traveling along a road called hate and a journey that will bring us to destruction. He goes on to say, Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, the command to love one's enemy is an absolute necessity for our survival. Love even for enemies is the key to the solutions of the problem of this world. Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is a practical realist. Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is the practical realist. I hope you realize the past few weeks that the call to see yourself fundamentally As one loved by God and therefore respond in radically loving ways is not some romantic sentimentality meant to simply help you feel better about yourself. I mean, I hope it certainly does help us feel better about ourselves. But that seeing yourself fundamentally, your fundamental primary identity as the beloved of God is in reality the only way this world will ever be changed. And this will be far from easy. It's not necessarily complicated, it's profound in its simplicity, but what Jesus is actually calling his church to be and to do is necessary And it is hard. So as we think about this today, loving our enemies, let me begin with just maybe trying to even say who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? The theologian and writer Greg Thompson put it this way. I thought this was helpful. The enemy is the one who does us willful and unrepentant harm. The enemy is the one who does us willful and unrepentant harm. Now, Jesus' original hearers would have had no problem identifying who their enemy is. They live under occupation. They live under the Roman Empire's occupation of their land, which means they could be struck in the face they could have their goods taken from them they could be forced to do things that they don't want to do they could suffer violence at the hand of the romans with complete impunity and not really much that they can do about it and millions of christians around the world today still live in similar contexts we do not, thankfully. So I think sometimes for us, identifying who our enemies are can be muddy, can be a little tricky to define. Some of us don't even like the thought of thinking of someone is our enemy, of someone being our enemy. And so we may say to ourselves, oh, I, don't, I don't have any enemies. There are no enemies. I, I have no enemy, actually. And some of us would say, everyone is our enemy. Everywhere we look around, we see our enemies. If you know anything about Enneagram and personality um, classification, Enneagram 8s, see everybody as their enemy, perhaps. And look around, and everyone is a threat. And this has been especially true the last six-plus years as our tribal loyalties have caused us to communally fear outsiders, and anyone who opposes us politically or culturally. They are my enemy. Well, it's neither true that no one is your enemy. It's also not true that everyone is your enemy. Both mistake the real enemies that we actually do have. And both miss Jesus' insult embedded within what he's saying as he elaborates on his sermon. When Jesus says, what good is it for you to love those who love you back? Or what good is it for you to be good to those who can be good back to you? Or what good is it for you to be generous to those who can pay you back? Because even sinners do all these things for other sinners. You do realize who he's talking about, right? Us, them, his original hearers. He meant them as well. As the Russian philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, writes, "If there were only there were evil people somewhere, insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So remember that when God, when Jesus says that God has been kind to the ungrateful and the evil, when He says to be merciful." even as your Father is merciful, and that kindness and mercy has been extended to the ungrateful and the evil, that includes us too. So if that's how we want to be treated, to be recipients of God's kindness and God's mercy, then we should treat others the same. Now, this does not exonerate our... Enemies from their willful and unrepentant harm that they have done to our bodies, our minds, our souls, our work. But it does situate who they are as our enemies in a larger story. And this does not mean you are to. And this does not mean. Sorry. And this this does mean. You are to recognize them as your enemies. Jesus is not shy away from this. It's not some sort of hyper-spirituality or piety for you to say you don't have any enemies. But, but because even your enemies bear the image of the divine, same as you do, it does mean that Jesus is calling us to refuse to respond to their evil with our vengeance. You either see God's divine image in everyone, or you don't see it at all. You don't get to pick and choose. So Jesus says, if you are slapped, don't slap back. If you are robbed, don't steal back. Actively resist the temptation to respond to violence and theft with more violence and theft. Now, to many this sounds like to love our enemies is to let them win. It is seen as a radical passivity an acquiescence to their harm, that abuse children, or abuse spouses or abuse neighbors, to just sit and take it as some sort of witness to the gospel of Jesus. No, that is not what that means. It does not mean that you have to continue. In abuse or abusive relationships, but it does mean that we are called as Christians not to respond in kind, but answering the strength of our enemies with a different kind of strength, responding to a slap with nonviolence, responding to greed with generosity, res- responding to an imposition. Of our will with an intercession of prayer, responding to exclusion with embrace. This is not resignation, it's not retaliation, it is a redemptive response. Now, what will happen when we love our enemies in redemptive ways? Well, as Dr. King knew, and his contemporaries of the civil rights movement knew, when you love your enemies, it does not mean that they will automatically stop slapping you. It does not mean that they will return your things to you. It doesn't always mean that they will pay you back in kind. It doesn't always mean that they're going to hug you in the street. But what it will always do, Jesus promises us in this passage, it will always conform you to the image of Christ. It will conform you to the image to be sons and daughters of the Most High. When you love your enemies, what it will always do is witness to God's love for sinners. This is evangelism. This is the apologetic for our faith. This is to witness that our King and Savior, to our King and Savior who prayed for those who nailed Him to a cross. This is to witness that Jesus' cross dispels any myth that there is such a thing as redemptive violence. This is to witness to Jesus' command to love one's enemies, not just because it's right, Not just because it's moral, not just because it's the only practical solution to our problems, as I think Dr. King rightly points out in his sermon, but because this is who God is. God loves his enemies. And if we are sons and daughters of God, then we too are called to practice nonviolent love against our enemies. We as the church in the United States have not been stellar. On this point, how do we love our enemies? But I think it is as important as ever that we choose as a church not to respond to our enemies by withdrawing, fortifying ourselves against them and just hoping that one day we'll look out the window and they'll be gone. They will have drifted away. Also, not to accommodate our enemies by ignoring what we confess and believe And just by simply imitating them. Nor is it to dominate them by judging ourselves to be the only owners of all that is true and good and right. And judging them to be only wrong. But it is more important than ever perhaps to love them. To choose to love them. As Dr. King says, and I will close with this, I am certain that Jesus understood the difficulty inherent in the act of loving one's enemy. He never joined the ranks of those who talk glibly about the easiness of the moral life. He realized that every genuine expression of love grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. So when Jesus said, love your enemy, he was not unmindful of its stringent qualities, yet he meant every word of it. Our responsibility as Christians is to discover the meaning of this command and seek passionately to live it out in our daily lives. I pray by God's Spirit that He would help all of us to do this very thing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen.